Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, Declan Garvey, and Chris Steyerwalt. We've got a star-studded panel today. We're going to talk about inflation, the politics of COVID, the White House approval ratings, not doing great, but the Naval Observatory doing even worse. And we'll end with some discussion of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as the jury is still deliberating on day two. Right in, Declan, we're starting with you. Inflation. Absolutely. So uh, probably about an hour or so after you guys recorded this podcast last week, we got some uh, new inflation numbers for the month of October. Um, we are seeing the, on, a, on a nationwide basis, inflation is up year over year, about 6.2% um, in October. Uh, and that is the, the highest or fastest rate of increase since, I believe, 1990. Uh, which was five years before I was born. So I've never uh, experienced anything like this. And I'm, you know, I recently got a car and have to pay for gas for the first time uh, on my own. And it's not fun. And it's causing a lot of problems in Washington with a lot of finger pointing. Um, and there, it started this really, or it's continued this debate that we've been having for months about whether inflation is quote unquote transitory, or if it's something that's going to be here for a long time, and we need to kind of orient all of public policy around combating it. And so uh, last week's numbers kind of gave, in many people's eyes, a, a big win to that second argument that this is something that we need to really be focusing and drilling down on. But the Biden administration has pretty limited tools at its disposal uh, at this point to um, to deal with it. But at the same time, the administration has kind of, in recent weeks, as the uh, build back better agendas, trying to barrel through Congress here and and get all the Democrats on board. This argument has emerged that that is what's going to solve the inflation crisis is adding another, uh, you know, one point seven five trillion dollars in government spending. And so uh, I'll kick it to uh, to Chris, to you first. Do you think the, the argument that the Biden administration is making here is that by uh, advancing this agenda, it will increase worker productivity by allowing more uh, parents to re-enter the workforce uh, and, and by freeing up childcare, and you know we'll we'll eventually kind of get back to a more equilibrium in supply and demand. Uh, you know, worries about inflation be damned. So, do you think is that an effective argument? Do voters believe that argument? How old were you when you got a driver's license? I was sixteen, but you didn't get a car till now. You were a mooch. You were you were you were a leech upon your family using uh, their vehicles. Is this I, accurate? I was. I was. And de depending on where I was driving, I did. I would have to pay for gas uh, some of the time. But some of the time, I I totally did mooch off of my parents. So okay, just 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 making sure. Because uh, remember, you spend your life until you're 16 wishing you could drive places, and then you spend most of your life after you're 16 wishing someone else would drive. So this is uh, well welcome to the club. Thank you. Inflation is like um, critical race theory. Um, it means different things to different people. Um, but there is a general... So when economists talk about inflation, they're talking about monetary supply. They're talking about those... They're talking about macroeconomic issues. When normal Americans talk about inflation, they mean just what you said. Gas is high. Stuff is expensive. Why does stuff cost so much? Um the arguments for uh, Build Back Better, um, which uh, have been thoroughly destroyed by the dispatch crew going through the legislation, it's basically a junk drawer in the kitchen that you pull out and there's some crap in there. And uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema have basically, you know, put sugar and ants in the drawer. It's a disaster. Um, they're going to say never. I guess I would, I would just I'll put it simply. Never listen to partisans about the arguments for why this legislation would be good or bad after a certain point. They're just going to say whatever they're going to say about this because they, they, they're, they're, they're honor bound to try to see it through. But I believe Joe, Manch or, uh, Joe Biden would be plenty happy if this thing died. I think he'd be, I think he'd be perfectly content if this spruce goose never made it off the deck. So 
there there's been kind of a a mini drama in in DC the past 24 hours or so very niche but the congressional budget office which is uh a nonpartisan entity that uh grades legislation kind of projects what the spending effects will be how it'll affect the deficit kind of you know it's politicians love it when it's not their legislation they hate it when it when it is um and it's it's supposed to issue a report on Friday around Friday grading the Build Back Better Act, this massive $1.75 trillion over 10 years. Um, and early indications are that it's not going to be good for Democrats, that despite claims that it's fully paid for by uh, offsetting uh, higher taxes on the wealthy and, and stricter IRS enforcement, that actually this, uh, this bill is not going to be fully paid for. It's going to inject more money into the economy and it's going to, um, it's going to, increase inflation that way. The Biden administration's response has been uh, interesting, where they're essentially now attacking the CBO, saying it's not fully equipped to uh, do the kind of dynamic scoring that uh, is, is necessary to, to really understand how much growth this agenda will, will lead to. You know, this is a debate we've been having uh, dating back years. The Trump administration did the same thing around tax cuts. But then it was a a much bigger you know attack on norms and the nonpartisan uh, CBO, all of that. Jonah, what what do you think about uh, how the Biden administration is handling the the politics of this? Um, but first of all, the the CB, CBO awards are as old as time. There were, um, I mean, I, I literally think one of the last things. Uh, the Stegosaurus ever heard was the CBO isn't doing a proper scoring. Um, they're very, very old. Um, and to pick up on what Chris laid out, and for, I apologize to listeners. Some listeners have a hard time distinguishing us. So uh, just so you know, I'm the one with facial hair. That should clear it up. Um, uh, but also, uh, 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 I tend not to use the phrase goat rodeo. And other than that, I can't help you with the audio doppelganger problem. So um, all that said, to pick up on something my audio doppelganger said, uh, don't trust partisans on this stuff. Look, if someone is saying we need this thing, we need this thing, don't worry, it's not going to cause inflation. It's not going to cause any problems. No one's talking about inflation. And you don't meaningfully change the legislation when, when inflation is all of a sudden a major concern. You say, ah, but you don't understand, this thing will actually reduce inflation. That's motivated reasoning out the yin-yang. I mean, that is car salesman, you know, what do I have to do to put you in this Buick today? And then someone says, oh, by, oh my God, do you see those, that zombie horde? And the car salesman says, oh yeah, but zombies hate this color. You know, that's one of the best things about this Buick. That's that kind of crap. And I, I dismiss it entirely. So I don't know if Chris has any living memory of 1970s inflation other than the way I really mostly remember it, which is through the TV shows at the time, um, where it was a big thing. Inflation was a big, big thing. And um, uh, the one of the problems is I think that the Biden administration and the Republicans are basically all living off of the memory of the inflation of the 1970s to make their arguments. And the problem is, is that the kind of inflation that we have now isn't the same kind of inflation that we had in the 1970s, by which I don't mean that the prices aren't rising. They are rising. By what I, but what I mean is, is that this is a supply side caused inflation, which, you know, the, the classic Milton Freeman definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and you have to add services, but too many, too, too much money chasing too, too few goods. The problem with that is that in the 1970s, it was the too much money part. It was a monetary thing that the Federal Reserve had the power to do something about. This time, inflation is a supply side thing. Which it's the too few goods part. We had a, we shut down economies all around the world. We shut down labor markets all around the world, and then we tried to restart them from a cold start. And you know, surprise, it created problems. And um, and now the problems have cascading effects on other problems. And uh, so it's not just that the ships are docked out front of the ports it's that once they the ships unload this stuff and they empty those containers they don't know how to get the containers back to the place where they need to be refilled ad infinitum and that's why we have all the supply chain problems as someone said on twitter the other day supply is born free but everywhere it is in chains 
And um, uh, shout out to Rousseau for you. So the 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 scare part of the scary thing about this is that all these people, it's like generals talking about the last war when the real analogies might be to 1948, you know, which is a point Paul Krugman made about, you know, post-World War II supply line problems. That said, you can still get old style, the other 1970s style inflation, if everyone changes their behavior. If, if you think inflation's here, you're going to act like inflation's here. And inflation is here right now. And its causes are different from those of the 1970s. But if you behave, if you respond to inflation by raising prices for your products or demanding more, uh, you know, um, more wages or um, um, saying, crap, I really got to get this flat screen TV for Christmas no matter what, and you willingly buy more, spend more on it, you're sending all sorts of price signals to the market to get people to change their behavior as if we have an inflation. And I frankly do not think that this administration has the first clue of how to deal with this problem because most really smart people who actually have diagnosed the thing correctly have no idea how to deal with this. And so, sure, it's transitory, but here's the thing. Until the sun goes out, everything is transitory. That's sort of a meaningless thing. And the idea that it'll operate on a timeline convenient to some election cycle is a really big bet that I wouldn't want to make for either party. And so I, you know, think everyone should buy gold. <laughs> Thank you, William Devane. Sarah, I, that kind of gets to my question for you. It, it, it seems to me that the Biden administration is essentially making an enormous bet here that because this is a supply side issue, um, supply chains will work themselves out over the next several months, um, maybe helped by some of the uh, provisions of the, the Build Back better or the infrastructure bill, maybe not, but the market will adjust. Things will start to trend back to normal. And by getting out in front of this and saying, my agenda will do this, then Biden can then take credit for uh, that happening, that kind of more natural process happening. We saw yesterday, I believe, U.S. retail sales increased 1.7% month over month. That kind of shows that at least in October, this higher inflation was not necessarily uh, dissuading American consumers from going out and buying things. On the flip side of that, if inflation continues to rise, they're going to be pretty uh, significantly on the hook for it because they're tying it to their policies. And so do you think from a political perspective, should, uh, should reducing inflation be priority number one for the Biden administration, end all be all, that is what their job is for the next year before the midterms? Should be, yes. Is Absolutely not. And we see that in lots of other policies. So I actually simply do not care about the infrastructure bill, the build back better social infrastructure bill. Um, I don't think most Americans know what they are. They certainly don't know the difference. Uh, this will be inside baseball forever and ever infrastructure week at infinitum. Uh, what I do think people are very aware of is this is just an example, really, of how the Biden administration has not prioritized inflation because they haven't prioritized supply chain issues, because they haven't prioritized labor shortages that their policies are having an effect on. So, for instance, and let's be clear, listeners, I am fully vaccinated. I think everyone should be fully vaccinated. But if you roll out a vaccine mandate when, in fact, um, you know, the Delta variant is subsiding, you've had the vaccine for a year, you know, there's all sorts of like why nows that are going to become very legally relevant, by the way, to whether OSHA had the emergency power to do this. Uh, but set all that aside, the result is that businesses that were already strapped to find workers um, as the percentage of workers quitting their jobs is also at an all-time high. This is going to lead to more of that uh, and it's going to cause more disruption in the labor market circa Christmas. Um, and that's going to have effects all the way through. It's going to once again, cause wage increases, which are good for the people who get the wage increases, bad for the people who don't switch jobs, don't get wage increases. Prices go up because of the wage increases. And so again, the, the bottom quintile of the labor market gets hosed, um, because of inflation, because the wage increases aren't actually lifting all boats. Um, and it then reverberates through the supply chain. 
and inflation just keeps going. Now, look, I think even holding all things steady, economists are saying inflation at this point doesn't level out until after the midterms. So I don't think the Biden administration believes um, that this is a political maneuver. So much as Joe Biden says, I've wanted to be president for 30 years. This is it. This is the only shot that I've got. If I want something on my you know, epitaph, um, I've got a few months to do it. And so whether they're sort of clumsily trying to tie this to like, um, oh, it might reduce inflation or something, I don't know. I don't think Joe Biden as a person cares one iota what effect this has on anything, except that he wants this to be his legacy. Therefore, it needs to get passed. So I disagree that uh, Biden himself would be fine if this bill gets killed. I think he very, very much sees this as um, the last chance for a Joe Biden legacy. Can I make one last political point on this? Yeah. I think the, you know, it's funny. Um, I keep forgetting the guy's name. Uh, help me out, Chris. The 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 Nixonland historian guy. Oh, uh, yes, I anyway, know who you. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's weird. Googling. Like my brain yes. will not yes. conjure yes, the yes, name. Yes. Um, he got a lot of grief about a month or so ago. Rick Pearl saying how. There yes. you go. Thank you. Uh, saying that he had cracked the code about inflation and the, the political salience of inflation in the 1970s. And it was, had nothing to do essentially with economics. It was code for loosening social and cultural norms, uh, for feminism, for civil rights. And it became a meta. It was inflation was a metaphor for ah. white panic and white male panic. <laughs> oh, it was kind of nonsense kind of thing. And it was not a very smart, insightful thing to say, but oh. If you flip it around, there's actually a real point there, which is that inflation d creates a thing in people's lives that makes them think everything else is out of control, too. It gives you a sense of uh, life out of balance, Koyana Skotsky, whatever you want to call it, where, the, um, um, where you don't trust elites, you see your life savings going away, you're working harder and earning less, in effect, you're worried about your kids. And you marry that sense of fear and disquietude to, I think, one of Biden's underlying problems, uh, which is that he's not up to the job um, or that he and the Democrats are distracted by other things and not actually addressing the things that people care about. It is particularly poisonous to do. And uh, I take Sarah's point about him wanting this legacy thing but the legacy could be a poisoned chalice for him. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. All right, Styrewalt, your topic's up next. Not unrelated. Well, so the Democrats have come to terms now with the fact that they are uh, in line for a, uh, a old fashioned ass whipping uh, in midterms. Cruising and, for a bruising, as my mom used to say. And um, so you can. Par speaking of, of partisans, you partisans tend to misread cues like this in a couple of different ways. One way is to say, well. It looks bad, but really we're doing much better. It's sort of like when Donald Trump lost, they're like, but look at Hispanic males. And you're like, well, look at them. Uh, <laughs> look, at, look at them right as you're losing the election. Um, the, so you can look for the pony in the pile of manure, or you can, be, you can do the other thing, which is uh, more common, which is to say, yes, but this is only further evidence of why, and as I wrote in the sweep this week, we have to smash our unpopular policies in the face of the electorate like a grapefruit until they submit 
until they finally see the wisdom of our ways. And so Democrats have engaged in a lot of this stuff. But I think the degree to which the uh, pandemic is, the pandemic and its after effects uh, is the water we fish are swimming in uh, is much bigger, uh, more prevalent than we tend to acknowledge. And Jonah, you have uh, talked and written about this convincingly and at length uh, with the maskophiles of the Democratic Party, who are within the Democratic Party. But I was struck when I listened to uh, Jared uh, Paulus, the uh, very liberal governor of Colorado, basically say to the pressures coming down on him from the left to reimpose masks, to reimpose distancing, to limit capacity ahead of ski season, by the way, uh, <laughs> in Colorado, as they had done in New Mexico. And he said, I'm not going to do it. We're going to just tell people to get vaccinated. And we're going to tell people who have more than six months in to get vaccinated. Jared Paulus recognizes that the permanent pandemic mindset in the Democratic Party is bad news. Um, Sarah, when we look at Virginia and New Jersey results, uh, as we've talked, as we've talked about here before, both of those can be read as rejections of democratic over frothiness about keeping the pandemic standards going. Is that fair? I think that's totally fair. I mean, I've said before, but I think we're getting more evidence for it that, and this is a very nuanced point. So let me try to make it carefully. While education clearly motivated Republicans in Virginia, the fact that we have such different um, topics but similar results, if not more swingy results in Long Island, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, even Minneapolis to some extent, uh, Seattle, shows that while, again, education motivated Republicans in Virginia, it looks like anything would have motivated Republicans in Virginia, which makes it still not actually causal. Uh, and so there's all this focus on CRT and education and that this is the winning issue. But Chris, I think you're actually on to something more. Didn't education uh, in Northern Virginia uh, stand in uh, as a coronavirus issue because of the failure? Exactly. Yeah. We're talking about it as an education issue when, in fact, schools were closed. So people are like, see, education. Why were they closed? because of the COVID pandemic policies that people then attributed to the left, rightly or wrongly, whatever. But I absolutely think it has to do with school closures, um, kids wearing masks outside. By the way, is there anything more ridiculous than seeing those, um, you know, like pre-K where they attach them all to the rope so they can walk them through, you know, urban Toddler chain streets? gangs. I love those Toddler things. Toddler chain gangs. And they're all wearing masks. So they're outside they're attached to, I mean, it just, it, there's like an absurdity to it. So yeah, I actually think that even education that Republicans think is their big winning issue, again, I do think it motivates Republicans, but like inflation, like Jonah said, it means different things to different people. And that in fact, uh, education was as much about pandemic policies as anything else. Um, and so I, I think you are wildly right that Interesting, like, note, of course, D.C. is lifting its mask mandate for what, indoor what? places uh, as of Monday. And that's Muriel Bowser, one of the more liberal mayors in the country. Uh, so I wonder whether this is all going to fade and far enough out from the midterms that politically it won't actually have much impact. But we'll see. Uh, Declan, or as you are no as you would be known in France, Declan. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a delicious pastry. A declan. Um, the declan. So, <laughs> the problem I would imagine for Democrats here is the mask, the distance. These became uh, shibboleths. These became uh, symbols of your progressive, uh, forward-thinking. Da 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 da. And it worked for Democrats for quite a while because the Republican Party uh, resolutely refused to take seriously the pandemic when voters really wanted them to, right? Uh, they wouldn't do it. Republicans just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Remember, they leaked a photo of Trump wearing a mask, and it was a special mask, but he'd only wear it in the hospital, the only place. And all of it. his advisors would talk about how handsome he looked in it. and Very handsome, yeah. sir. You've never, you, you've never looked more powerful and virile uh, than when you're wearing your presidential mask. So... 
it would have been uh, the in the Republicans' best interests uh, in the spring and summer of 2020 to have taken it really seriously, right? Uh, as, and probably could have saved Trump's reelection. If they'd have just let Mike Pence do it and taken it seriously, it probably would have worked out a lot better for him. How will those internal pressures, though, work on Democrats? Because Jared Polis is taking heat. Democrat, I'm sure people are, are mad at Muriel Bowser for letting this go. How, how is that going to play among Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, you know, broken clock is right twice a day situation where if you're, if you were virulently anti-mask, you are, you know, it sure. There are some situations where it's still warranted if you're visiting someone who can't get vaccinated or uh, is otherwise immunocompromised. But for the most part now, if, if you are vaccinated, if everybody you're around is vaccinated, uh, there's not a overarching scientific reason to be wearing a mask unless the goal is now to eliminate all flu and cold transmission for the rest of time. Um, and so, uh, which, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that is, but there, there's kind of a, uh, if you were, if you were virulently at night mask, you were not following the science in spring of 2020, but you kind of are now. Um, and it's been interesting to see that shift over time. I, you know, when, when we first were liberated from the mask regime earlier in the summer and, uh, it was, I have a, a couple people I talked to who work at the white house and it was a big deal when the CDC put out that press release and everybody in the white house got up and took their mask off and it was a big celebration. And then three weeks later, they're all wearing them again, but, Psych. uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, I think it's, I've talked to a lot of people and obviously DC is a, a very liberal city, very, uh, it, it's a bubble, but I've talked to people who don't want to be wearing masks, but say, I'm going to keep wearing it because I don't want people to think I'm a Republican or I don't mm -hmm. want people to think that I'm backwards on this. Um, Joan has often cited the example of uh, David Hogg, the one of the uh, yes. uh, Parkland uh, survivors. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and I think that's a very real phenomenon. It, I mean, it it happened on I, I'm sure in Red America a year ago, there were plenty of people who were concerned about the pandemic, but didn't wear a mask because they didn't want to I have be been seen. I've been yelled at in public for mask wearing. Yes, that's for sure. So it's 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 very interesting to see yeah, how but it's you become. wear that mask, that Halloween Mike Myers thing, which does <laughs> creep people out. It's just about life choices. That's it. It's a lifestyle. I heard from a friend recently, by the way, who lives in a rural part of the country, and she and the local sheriff uh, both secreted to the town next door to get their vaccines because it is so tribally frowned upon that you are embarrassing the tribe. So they, uh, yeah, they together eloped to the town next door to get vaccinated. Yeah, it's just, it's a very strange tribal, uh, you know, I, I, I think eventually we will come to a point where, uh, you know, like Jared Polis in Colorado, I mean, there, there's an old joke about, um, a drowning man and and a boat comes to save him and he says no thanks god will save me uh and then another boat comes and he says no thanks god will save me and he gets to heaven and god's like i sent you two boats why didn't you those are the vaccines those are this new um paxlovid that that pfizer is coming out with that uh if it's this oral antiviral pill if taken within three days of symptoms onset even Don't take Jonah's question. You're you're now you're now you're going out of your lay. You're way out now. We've got to save, <laughs> All leave right. something for Dr. Goldberg. All right, go for it, doctor. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, let me let me just frame it this way: that the mirage of freedom that we experience, that you can attribute Joe Biden's uh, uh, the slough of despair, the broken heartedness to the missed expectation. It's summertime. What was it going to be? Hot girl summer. It's going to be great. Everything's going to be awesome. The masks are off. Everything's good. How much, from a social psychology perspective, how much does uh, that missed moment affect the fact that now, as Scott Gottlieb has, our colleague Scott Gottlieb from the American Enterprise Institute has very persuasively argued, and now, as Declan says, with the antivirals, this is the penicillin moment. We're here. We made it. Is there is there a, a, a refusal to embrace this in part because of the missed expectations of summertime? I think for sure they feel like they screwed that up. And I, I think 
again, this sort of this sort of gets to Sarah's point about how the CRT thing. You know, it's funny how at the beginning of the podcast, Chris, you brought up uh, CR. You know, you said inflation is a lot like CRT. You know, blah blah blah. That was the point of my LA Times column, which was that the lead of it was how is how is inflation like CRT? And um, the answer is people have a really hard time explaining what it is, but they know it when they see it. They know it when they see it. And um, I think that to Sarah's point about like how a big part of the CRT thing was a stand-in for people being just generally pissed off at schools and at teachers and not believing the public education bureaucracy had their interests at heart for a very long time. And so then you add in this culture war thing and people are just like, look, I've seen what my kids bring home, bring home from school, which by, by which I mean, bring home from their laptop, from the living room into the kitchen. And I don't like it. And I, and you can tell me it's not technically CRT. I don't care. That's what people are calling it. And that's the label that we're going to use. And by the way, it includes gender, transgender bathroom stuff and a zillion other things. Similarly, I think, you know, I think that Biden's sense of drift since the the rise of the the Delta variant, Afghanistan, making what I think was singularly the dumbest call in modern American politics in many ways, which was not to spike the football on the bipartisan infrastructure thing after the Senate vote and call it a first year and just and go back to watching, you know, those reruns of mayor of high town like he wants to um and uh and so it's very hard to disaggregate these things but you know as, as i was talking to paul bloom a leading you know, psychologist diseases make people crazy we've been talking about this for a long time here they make people feel like the world is not to be trusted weirdly so does inflation and weirdly so does a really old president who can't finish sentences reliably and you can add a dozen other things to make people feel like the the current leadership is adrift and that if you, I can imagine being inside the bunker of the White House and these guys are so deep inside the bunker, you know, you could have the Dresden bombing above them and they could still successfully play a game of operation and pull <laughs> out like the, the thigh bone without setting off the nose. Um that was and, Dennis Millerian in the amount of arcane reference, the amount of arcana that you were able to pack into that one riff. Um, you know, you know what you call a um, someone, who, uh, a stand-up comedian who wants to immunize the Eschaton? Dennis what? Millenarian. <laughs> All right. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with this. Uh, waka, this waka, is what waka. happens when Steve is in the round is that's just right. things go off the rails. And I think that's the politics of all this. Oh, the, the White House is in the bunker. They're second guessing all of their decisions. They screwed up a bunch of things. They know they screwed up, but they don't know why they screwed up. They, and so that causes you to second guess yourself and double down on your priors rather than sort of get out of your bubble. And I think that's their primary problem. Word. All right, Jonah, you're up next. See, I was setting myself up yeah. for my, my topic. Yeah. So uh, on this point of sort of the White House off the rails, not really fully grasping uh, the the situation at hand. Uh, we've had this hellacious Washington post, um, uh, ABC poll that is, has the worst results for, uh, looking at midterms for Democrats since they started the asking the question in 1981. Um, you have, uh, you know, was it two weeks ago? Um, the, New York Times editorial page lambasted uh, the Democrats for moving too far to the left, which, you know, is somewhere in the book of Revelation as a major sign of the apocalypse. Um, and I, but I think the sort of the, the most interesting thing going on right now are these stories about Kamala Harris's team leaking, particularly to CNN, that maybe the guys running the Biden White House are racist because they're not treating uh, Kamala Harris the way a world historic figure like her should be treated. And that everyone is to blame for her having, what was it we thought it was, Sarah, like 28% approval rating, which for a vice president who isn't involved in any major scandal, as far as I can tell, is just unprecedented. Um, 
So how are you? How do we? If we're just if we're going to do instead of just pure rank punditry, but rank Kremlinology punditry of what's going on with the White House, how do we connect all of these things together? And what does it possibly mean for the future of the Democratic Party or twenty twenty four? I ask you, Chris Darwald. Uh, everything and nothing. Uh, no, I uh, the line that's that in the CNN piece on this uh, that that tickled me in its absurdity was, uh, uh, and, and this is supported with no evidence, and implicit racism and sexism have been constant. <laughs> now, I don't know, I don't know how they do it uh, in the Biden administration, but I kind of doubt that racism and sexism are constant uh, everywhere within the Biden administration. You know, what do you do with Kamala Harris, the most overrated, formerly the most overrated politician of her generation? Um, vice presidents should either be effective outreach to a subgroup. Uh, this would be the Mike Pence model. Send Pence out to go talk to the churchy people and calm them down, uh, you know, after Trump does something heinous. Uh, or... Uh, what Bush wanted Dan Quayle to be to somebody that can, can uh, soothe your coalition, but doesn't play a substantial role. The other thing that a vice president can be is a potted plant, right? You go over there and don't say anything, right? You go over there and we'll let you know if the president dies and then you can, and then, then we'll, we'll holler. The problem with Harris is she is not competent. She's a terrible politician with terrible political instincts. She took this super, Baduper opening and the support from all these Obamanots and all of these people in her for her candidacy in 2020. And in the course of six weeks, trashed it, totally wrecked the car. And uh, so she's not good enough to put forward. Neither she, will she be a potted plant because she has to be, and we have to all understand this through the lens of the knowledge inside the White House that even among the most ardent, even Jill Biden, even the, the, the ones who love the president the most, uh, would have to admit that there is uh, a non-zero chance that he will not be the party's nominee in 2024. And so she needs visibility and will resent uh, people who are denying it to her. But I think we just see another example of a politician whose ambition, whose overweening ambition outruns her capacity. So, Sarah, were you a fan of West Wing? You feel like you were a fan of West Wing. I get of that course vibe. I was. Yes, okay. Lemon Lyman, guys. So, uh, um, the one of these ideas that's being batting around, and you can take this anywhere you want to go, but I just, as the resident AO guest here, um, one of these ideas that you see bandied around is very West Wing, you know, which is funny because we have such a veep, veep. Um, and it is that Biden people, there's a rumor, which you think apparently has to keep getting shot down, that what Biden's going to do to get to cut, cut the Gordian knot here is just go ahead and put Kamala Harris on the Supreme Court, as if that's like a super easy thing to do, right? It's like, on Monday, hey, I know what we can do. Let's give her a let's give her a spot over at the Supreme Court, like it's like a spot at HUD. Um, <laughs> uh, she's she's second in line behind Barack Obama. If you read uh, conservative right. media, so oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, so anyway, what Sarah? What am I supposed to make of this? Yeah, I think that is uh, total silliness. And even though the the Republican Party has the beefiness of the Federalist Society that would throw an all-out fit to not have a true intellectual conservative on the court, even though that doesn't really exist on the left in the same way, there will still be enough of an outrage. Uh, look at what Elena Kagan has been able to do on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Kamala Harris simply would not have the legal chops to do that, not because she's not a smart person or Sotomayor. a lawyer. <coughs> Sonia Sotomayor. <coughs> <laughs> And, and, and what senators are going to be voting for for to confirm her? I mean, like, it's it's just anyway. I, I, okay, but what's your I, bigger picture on all this? I thought the most interesting part of this CNN anonymous source hit piece on Harris was the feeling within the Naval Observatory staff that. Pete Buttigieg is getting the love and defense from senior White House officials, but when Harris is in trouble, 
she doesn't get any defense, to which the same anonymous White House officials were like, yeah, because Pete Buttigieg didn't do anything wrong and your person did. So (laughs) here's the interesting thing to me. While I agree that Harris's political instincts are not, you know, Bill Clinton's, for instance, a lot of people's political instincts aren't Bill Clinton's, and yet they make very successful politicians. I think the problem here is her staff. I think that she has not had... I know, I know, I'm going to do it. Talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations. (laughs) Jeez Louise. She's good. She's just not well-staffed. She just needs to be herself. Hear me? Yes, that is what I'm going to say. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. Sarah, that's that's what a White House staffer told me yesterday. So, a message. (laughs) Uh, That... Now, the White House isn't going to like where I take this, but uh, that, yeah, she has not had long-term staff. She doesn't keep staff around. She doesn't have experienced people around her. In part, I think the White House as a whole suffers from some of this, where they're so interested in having um, examples of diversity. They've put people without the necessary experience into positions where they are set up not to succeed. Uh, Nevertheless, the let Harris be Harris model that the White House does not want, but that I think would work very well for Harris, is that a lot of the times her gaffes are her saying something she actually does believe, finding out, you know, her staff then freaks out because they're not politically popular, the White House doesn't like it, and then they scramble around trying to apologize without apologizing and be defensive without being defensive. So let me take the student at that town hall who says, you know, Israel's committing genocide, um, and she doesn't correct the student. Because she agrees. So if you're if if this were in the Obama era or even in the Bush era, where you had vice presidents who in fact were more experienced in Washington than their presidents they were serving, they were brought in to provide that sort of relationship log rolling aspect. They also said what they meant. And when they said it, they were like, Yeah, that's what I think is what it is, man. Now the difference is they weren't trying to run for president. Well, except it turns out one of them was. But in this case, Harris actually, I think, believes that Israel is a bad actor. Maybe she even believes they're committing ethnic genocide. What Joe Biden would have done in that situation or Dick Cheney is to say, yeah, that's not the position of the president, but it is mine. Don't know what to tell you. That would have pushed people back so much further than what, in fact, the Harris team did, which is, oh my God, we're so sorry. We'll meet with Jews. What? <laughs> and it became both insincere and a gaffe, and that she had no political instincts. Huge staffing problem. The vice president's staff does not have the self confidence to tell the West Wing staff to push off. And so the problem is then the West Wing doesn't trust the vice president's staff because they shouldn't. And you've got like the JV team. It's not the way it will not, work if you want not to, be to belabor, not to belabor the point. Then why was she so terrible at running for president? If the problem is, is she didn't have, she it was Joe Biden's fault. No, oh, no, oh, okay. she doesn't have the staff that has the self-confidence to say, push forward, push through it. People, you know, the initial reaction might be unpopular, but actually people don't care so much about whether you share their exact positions as they care that you mean what you say that you're not flim-flamming around as a politician. And Harris is Twitter-bound in that sense. All right, so I want to get Declan in here. Um, but I just just for the record, I'm open to this. The staff is part of the problem thing. That, but, like, the problem with saying having a, that monocausal explanation is that it doesn't include the fact that Kamala Harris's inappropriate laughter Ooh. is among the most brutal things in American oh. politics and it's in poker it is it would be the equivalent of getting a hand where your high card is an eight and that's all you've got and laughing uproariously about how you're going to beat it it's, just, it's the weirdest tell of I don't know what to say I feel very awkward and that is why I'm going to laugh as if we're all agreeing on a joke here that none of us think is funny it is truly weird. awful that's not staffing that is a weird subroutine that somehow some Al Gore-like virus infected her androidness. And I, <laughs> Declan, settle this for you. I know you don't like it when mom and dad and dad fight. So um, where do you come down on all this? I, I disagree with Sarah. I think, um, the, I think that 
the staff problems are real, but they are ultimately Kamala Harris problems. And that is because one who is who is choosing her staff for her, obviously in the transition, some of this, you know, some of the Biden team folks get shuffled over there. And but she's been with a lot of the same people dating back to her first Senate run in California. Um, who? It, her sister is very involved. Yeah, her sister in, first. Her sister is not on staff, Declan. No, but she's clear. You know, she's clearly still taking advice from a lot of the same people. Um, it, I, I will also say, you know, the we talked about the laugh. We can't make it through this entire segment without mentioning the most hilarious beep moment of her vice presidency thus far, which is her walking into a room that's supposed to be a surprise birthday party for her, and her yelling "surprise" before anybody jumps out. Because because it <laughs> yes. was so choreographed yes. in advance. Yes. And and I'll yes. ask Caleb to put it in the show notes. It's the funniest thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> but I, I I think I think Democrats need to be very, very concerned about this growing it's the staff problem with Harris, because otherwise you're going to end up with a coronation of her in 2024 or 2028, where there's just not a like I think there's there's a very similar problem that she has to what Trump had in that he cannot fail. He can only be failed. Um, and we're seeing that with Harris here, but she has a much, much smaller base than Trump ever did. One, I, my girlfriend lives like three blocks from the Naval Observatory. I bike by there all the time. And nice, that, nice brag. You slipped in there. My girlfriend, yeah, I've got a girlfriend. He just pretty, wants to let you know. It's pretty sick. And, and I bike sometimes. So, um, but a bike, cyclist with a lady. <laughs> that's uh any any man's dream. But when I go by there, there there have been protesters out there nonstop for months and they're from the left. They're not. Um, and it's it's very upset or they're, they're very upset with Harris for not doing more on uh, the border, not doing more on voting rights, all these other things. She doesn't have this bedrock of support in the Democratic Party that uh, is translatable to kind of a broader coalition, I think. that, And part of the problem is um you know, I, I do think that the Harris people are kind of understandably upset that the issues that they've been saddled with is, hey, go fix the border and pass a voting rights bill when we only have 50 votes in the Senate. Chop, chop. And like those are both losing hands that Biden obviously didn't want to take on for himself. But at the same time, if Harris wants to be president one day, there's going to be a lot of issues that she's going to have to handle that are unpleasant. And so, um, you know, there there were background quotes in this saying, complaining about that kind of delegation of like, well, they're just giving her all the things that that Biden doesn't want to do. And it's like, yes, but welcome to the vice presidency. If, if, right. if, <laughs> if you're auditioning to be the president, those are all going to be your issues one day eventually. And so, um, you know, it 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 just strikes me as a very, very dangerous road to go down that Kamala is actually OK. Uh, people are just misunderstanding. She has this great personality that, you know, you just Ooh. can't see. But when she runs for president in two years, it'll be there. It, I mean, any any Republican candidate that isn't currently on trial for murder or something would beat her in 2024. And so uh, the, the Donald Trump, the Donald Trump, Kamala Harris election is actually the election America deserves. That is that that is what we have wrought upon ourselves for sure. Trump Gosar versus Harris Sanders. <laughs> Trump Gosar definitely sounds like a syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> the jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has started day two of deliberations. Uh, we could have a verdict, of course, at any point. They are, are being asked to decide whether the prosecution has met its burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse in the moments before he pulled the trigger did not have a reasonable fear for his life. And yet, boy, have I not heard that explanation of what the jury's deciding on either side of the political spectrum. So Jonah, my question to you is, why does America have an obsession with sort of taking a trial that our criminal justice system is built to be fact-bound um, about the person themselves and their actions it's our whole system is based around this. And yet we are so obsessed as society of taking that and making it into a narrative. And we've done this throughout our country's history. Why? Tell us. Um, I, 
I agree. I mean, it's, so it's, it's, do you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, the John Bunyan? Not, it's like considered like one of the first novels in Western civilization. It's not a great read. Um, and, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh uh, is where it's at. Um, <laughs> and it's, but it's funny cause it's, it's, I think the correct literature for it is allegorical in the sense that like the characters actually have names that are their motivations, right? So it's like, I, I'm doing this, I'm making this up, but it's like, Mr. Strives to climb uphill. It's like a dude's <laughs> name, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and I think we do a lot of this with our politics. Uh, we definitely saw it like with the Kavanaugh thing where, where we, you had, you literally had, you know, senators saying that I believe he's a rapist because just look at his judicial opinions. Um, and you have something similar going on where you just have this craving to impose clean narratives of your tribal truths on this stuff to the point where, I mean, the, the ones that really stick out to me that I just find fascinating about what the implication is, uh, like the Ben and Jerry's guy tweeted this, I've seen, but I've seen a dozen of these different things saying, imagine if Rittenhouse were black, does anyone think he would have gotten justice? And the weird thing about that argument is if you take two seconds to think about it, what they're saying is if Rittenhouse was black, he would have been treated unjustly and unfairly. So therefore, it is unjust and unfair to treat, to deliver actual justice based on the facts of the case to Rittenhouse, which is like the most convoluted two wrongs make a right kind of argument imaginable. I'm all in favor of treating black people, black defendants justly. But if you're going to say hypothetically or allegorically that black people don't get don't get justice therefore we shouldn't give white kids justice either well that's just very stupid that's like we should all jump off the bridge because your friends are jumping off the bridge kind of stupid and um and i think it's it's i we try to avoid media criticism around here um but the desperation of people to make them into a white supremacist i just think is very very telling i'm not saying that you can't possibly make that argument because he was there to defend property against you know, BLM writers or whatever, I get it. But like, if you read some of the headlines out there, you read some of the lead paragraphs out there, you would think he went and shot, that he went there to shoot deliberately three black people, that he shot three black people. And that's why he needs to go away when in fact he didn't shoot any black people. And um, I'm not a big Rittenhouse stan by any stretch of imagination, but it's weird how we, we want reality show plot lines to apply to reality. And that's just not healthy. So Declan, uh, the Ahmed Arbery case has also gone to trial against the people who shot and killed him. I see this, I think, a little differently than you. So, uh, and why the Rittenhouse trial is getting a lot more attention. Um, I think it's because the Rittenhouse case actually is harder. So there is, uh, I think, good evidence that Rittenhouse maybe did not have a reasonable fear for his life. The fact that the guy next to him walked away, like turned his back, clearly not scared for his life. Um, and then of course you have testimony that Rittenhouse didn't raise his weapon until a weapon was raised at him, a loaded weapon at that. Uh, and so it was just a harder case. It's a more complicated case and therefore people can snatch it up for their various narratives and ignore the other side of it. Whereas I think the, um, shooting of Ahmed Arbery there's really no one arguing that this was self-defense. There's no one arguing that like this was... Except for the uh, defendant's lawyers, obviously. Except for the defendant's <laughs> lawyers who, I mean, you want to talk about some malpractice, not in the legal sense, I'm saying, but in the sense that we all use it. Uh, oh, where the he says Sharpton the, thing? Yeah, oh that um, he would like the judge to ban black preachers from the courtroom? <laughs> what? Uh, so that's my take on why these are getting very different levels of attention, but you maybe had a more, a higher level take. I, d I don't think your take is wrong. I think that there's obviously some truth, uh, to that. Uh, it's, it's a much more, uh, legally interesting case on, on the Rittenhouse side. Um, at the same time, I think that they, they fit very, very different narratives, uh, meta narratives that we've been having these debates on over America, racism, um, and, and kind of where we are as a country, you know, on, on that we've had on the, the right where 
you know, America was uh, a racist country or there, there were, you know, slavery. Then there was the civil rights movement. We've come so far. There are still individual bad actors who uh, hold really hateful and uh, racist views. And we need to, you know, obviously do everything we can to stamp that out. But it's not a systemic nationwide uh, crisis that you see in some of the uh, rhetoric on the left where racism is much more systemic. It's built into all of our institutions. Um, and there's really nothing that individual actors can do to to escape this kind of inherent racism that is, you know, we're either born with or quickly uh, acquire living in America. And so I, I think it's interesting that the, the Arbery case fits much, much neater in that first camp where, the, okay, we can all agree these guys, two old white guys or a dad and a son from the South uh, go chasing after a uh, black man who's jogging and kill him. This is, you know, it's, it's a story that dates back hundreds of years to different lynch mobs, the KKK, things like that. Um, it, it's very recollective of, of those kind of stories that we've heard throughout history. And it's much easier for people to say, okay, that those guys are obviously racist. Let's, um, let's just throw them away. And, and what they did is horrible. The Rittenhouse case, and I think it's interesting, Jonah, you mentioned that there's been this rush to declare him a white supremacist. Um, that it's, I, I forget who it was, but there were some people who came out the other day and said, uh, we didn't know that his victims were white. It was just assumed <laughs> that, that the people that he shot were, were black in these, in these riots. Um, and you know, it's, it's, there's a more meta narrative of how did this 17 year old kid, uh, end up in the situation where he felt like he had to go defend these protesters or defend, uh, these stores in Kenosha from, uh, black lives matter protesters, rioters, whatever you want to call them. Um, and that's a more nuanced and more uh, controversial take that I think fits more firmly in, in the left's camp on, on America and racism. And Steyerwald, I do feel like part of this also is uh, that there's this assumption that Rittenhouse will get acquitted. You know, talking to legal uh, you know, prosecutors ahead of this, they were surprised there was even a case brought and said, but for the political pressure, um, they did not think that a different prosecutor would have brought this to a jury. And so from the beginning, there's been this assumption that he'll get acquitted, which I think is part of why there's a narrative on the left trying to make this something else. Because underlying all of that, even what Jonas said, like, you know, imagine if he's black. Well, to be clear, if Rittenhouse gets convicted, then their point sort of falls apart in that sense. So there's this assumption that he's going to get acquitted. Um if he gets acquitted versus if he gets convicted, we have National Guard standing by in Kenosha. The jury isn't sequestered. Um, I don't know. Where does this leave us based on where we were last summer, which was a pretty dark place in George Floyd or Kenosha or even going back to Ferguson? Are we just setting ourselves up for more of these? Well, I mean... Sure. Yeah. I, the, it is the human condition, I suppose. We are always set up for more of these. Uh, there's a cabinet in my kitchen that has a uh, burl in the wood that looks exactly like the face of a corgi. And every time I do the dishes, I look up at the dog face and it pleases me. Our brains are designed to see people and animals and objects where they're, they are not. It is a very important survival uh skill uh, capability that we evolved because it's far better to see a corgi that is not there uh, than to not see a wolf that is. Uh, so we are, our minds are really good at leaping to these conclusions and painting pictures uh, where they are not. And that also relates to um, the coalitional instinct. And it also relates to seeing your people, even when they're not your people. This explains how Americans got so excited about Brexit. Uh, American uh, right-wingers got so excited about Brexit. And you're like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with you, but they liked it. They liked the feeling. <laughs> or now uh, with, um, uh, what's his name? The lunatic in Hungary, Vic Victor Orban. You're like, what are you talking about? What, what does that have anything to do with you? So the coalitional instinct uh, sees corgis as well. Um, 
we will always do this. We will always continue to do this. Um, what we have to hope is that our legal system, and this is where uh, respect for the courts, respect for the law, respect for these things is so important. The saddest numbers that I read this week by far uh, were the numbers, uh, I think it was Monmouth that did the survey on trust and confidence in institutions. And guess what? It sucks. People do not. Uh, and that includes increasingly the criminal justice system and the legal system. So we will always do this. The question is, uh, will we at, at some point use up the credibility uh, that we have, the respect and esteem we have for the criminal justice system. It certainly worked uh, in the case uh, in Minneapolis uh, with Derek Chauvin, right? It worked. Things turned out the way they were supposed to turn out. And it worked. Uh, whatever it's supposed to be this time, I hope people will honor the result. Can I, can I add one more point? I, I, I know this differs state to state. But I think it just stinks so much that this trial has been televised. It, it makes Word. the proceedings so much worse. Um, and and you you talk about you know people not knowing that uh, the victims were white, for example. That's like a very very basic level of knowledge needed to have to understand a trial. And now all these you know all these commentators, pundits, what have you, are looking at fifteen second clips of a judge commentary or. Uh, you know, six seconds out of context of something that the defendant said on the stand and jumping to these sweeping conclusions about how the criminal justice system works and, uh, you know, making all these points that have literally no basis in legal. And it's happening on, you know, whether you're pro or anti Rittenhouse. Um, but it, it just I think it does so much damage to the point that Chris was talking about, uh, about this trust in institutions where you have these bad actors jumping uh, to conclusions based on out of context snippets that clearly they don't have any understanding. I'm not pretending to be some trial lawyer expert, but I'm also trying not to come to to any hot takes here. So um, it I, it's it's a problem in Congress. It's a problem in so many other areas of political life. But these cameras, I I would be so in favor of replacing them all with transcriptions. And I hope the Supreme Court never ever ever adds cameras to their arguments. Well, I agree with that. Uh, interestingly, I think the the prosecution has also made something, made some arguments that are not actually legally relevant. Like you can't claim self defense if you're the one who brought the gun. Nope, that's not the rule. That's yeah, not that's the weird. law. Oh no. Um, <laughs> well, also like NBC drives me crazy. I can't remember the name of the reporter, but I've he loves this framing and he says it every single time I caught him, at least for a couple of days where he stands in the streets of Kenosha and says, you know, uh, tensions are high here as people are split between viewing uh, Rittenhouse as um, a, a murderous white supremacist and others see him as a patriot who is only trying to defend his <laughs> you know, property. It was like, really? Neither those are the those only two camps? Only two views. You know, the I mean, only like, views you know, like, there's no other circle for the Venn diagram <laughs> that includes, you know, most of us? Our esteemed colleague, David, uh, wrote a piece yesterday uh, basically saying he's not a murderer, but he's not a hero. And everybody was mad about it because in, in our in our dumb tribal uh, team A, team B world, you have to pick a lane and run with it. And any nuance introduced disrupts kind of the, the cognitive dissonance there. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, the prosecution trying to prove that he was a chaos tourist... He was, and that has no relevance as whether in the moments before he pulled the trigger, he had a reasonable fear for his life, uh, you know, except to the extent that you're showing that, in fact, he's lying about fearing for his life because, in fact, he went there for the purpose of shooting someone. But that's not that's not quite the same as being a chaos tourist. I 100 percent believe he was a chaos tourist. He had no business being there. Uh, he shouldn't have been carrying a gun. All of these things, I believe, and they are all totally irrelevant to whether the prosecution met its burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse in the moments before he pulled the trigger did not have a reasonable fear for his life. The end. Yeah. If you look at the Dinesh, Dinesh D'Souza's attacks on David, oh, it's no. sort of so sim perfectly symbolic of the have your cake and eat it to jackassery of some of these people where he said, David says basically what Declan just said, you know, he's neither a hero uh, nor a villain or whatever, you know, whatever the framing was, 
but he shouldn't have been there. And Dinesh's response was, um, the only way to translate this, interpret this tweet or some, I'm paraphrasing is that, uh, David is trying to tell the world that he is morally superior. Meanwhile, this brave young man is fighting to defend his country and his community while he sits on the sidelines preening as, as if he is, you know, self-righteous and better than all of it. Well, now the pro here's the problem. David doesn't think that taking a gun to a riot is a defense of Western civilization. Dinesh does. And he's the pansy ass culture war chicken hawk sitting on his ass while letting some other little kid go fight according to his logic, not according to David's logic. And that is the weird thing about so many of these sort of right wing dunkers on people who say he's neither hero nor villain is that they want helter skelter. They want race war that, you know, the, the Kurt Schlichter, you know, jackwads out there saying all of these things, but they want someone else to do it. And then they want to sort of performatively, you know, uh, leech off of it like a suckerfish on a great white on Twitter while actually risking nothing for themselves because they're just doing fan service and they don't actually believe what they're saying. And with that, we here at the Dispatch will continue to not remora on anyone else's shark. No sucker fishes for us. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Definitely tell your friends about this podcast. Part of how you can do that is rating this podcast wherever you're getting it. It helps other people find it. Appreciate it. And appreciate uh, Declan and Chris coming in today. Liked it. Liked it.